Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am with a special guest tonight. I've got my good friend, Nizar Taki, Dr. Taki. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Toby. It's an Absolutely. honor. Absolutely, man. Well, Nizar is a really interesting guy. We met uh, at a place I used to work at um, and basically went through this week of, of brain training together and ended up just kind of, you know, vibing out and started talking towards the end of the week and, you know, just a lot about like a lot of similar interests that we both have and ended up kind of staying in touch. And I'm really happy, you know, I have you on the show tonight to talk about kind of a lot of, a lot of your path as far as starting off. I want to, I want to start off with, you know, how you are a plastic surgeon by training to start off. How did you get into that sort of work? Thanks for asking. Uh, so I am trained as a facial plastic surgeon and the path I took was um, kind of knowing in medical school that I wanted to do surgery of some kind. And then once you decide to be a surgeon, you have to choose kind of what part of the body you want to specialize in. And I always thought the face and the, the head and the neck were the most interesting. So I did a residency in um, otolaryngology, which is surgery of the head and neck or the ears, nose, and throat. And then after that, I did a um, subspecialty training in facial plastics. And the reason I chose uh, plastic surgery is I've always been really interested in, um, like in, in what makes people tick, what makes people happy, how people's self-image works. And one of the books I read um, I think it was in around middle uh, around uh, medical school when I read it was a book written by a plastic surgeon in the 60s and it was one of the first self-help books uh, and it was called psycho cybernetics and it refer cybernetics is a word that refers to steering or like navigation and it refers to how people he basically that this plastic surgeon wrote about how people's self-image determines how they behave and basically the outcomes that they get in their lives. And he noticed this because most of the people that he operated on would, let's say, be really happy or, or confident after their surgery, surgical results. But he noticed that some patients, even if they had a really good surgical outcome, they would still be insecure or they'd still have whatever problem it was that they hoped to solve with the surgery. And so he became really fascinated by this and he realized that you can't fix somebody's self image uh, with surgery alone. It has to be, you know, basically somebody's not going to become confident if they have, if they don't have the self image of somebody who's confident. So surgery can sometimes change both, but sometimes it doesn't change the person's self image, in which case then the surgical, you know, they may have a great surgical result but they won't feel like anything's actually changed. So I was really fascinated by that and, and also really fascinated by people who seem to have everything that they need to be happy, like people who are healthy, who have money, um, and basically have, you know, their whole, whole, you know, life, life ahead of them. And then they, they feel like there's something missing. And sometimes it's, Oh, I, I wish I looked different. Um, sometimes it's, I wish I had more money or, relationships, whatever it may be, I'm, I was always fascinated by the people that seem to always want more, even though they have what most of us would consider to be lives that should make you really happy. And so I thought plastic surgery is a great field for exploring that, what makes people tick. Right. So I'm curious, when did, at what point, how old were you when you read that psycho-cybernetic book? Were you like midway through going through plastic surgery training? This was before I uh, started my surgical training. So this was like in, in after, basically after college. Okay. So I'm curious then, like once you actually like got through all of the training that you needed to do, did sort of that experience, did that like your experience with patients, did that sort of mirror what you had read about in the book? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I noticed was that some most patients would have a change in their self-image after surgery. So, like, 
a girl might come in with, you know, she's a, she's a high schooler. She's just graduating high school, maybe. And, you know, she's really shy because, you know, maybe she like inherited her dad's nose, which just looks really big on her. And she's been insecure about that, you know, for throughout high school. And then um, we do the surgery on her and she comes back and you can kind of see like she's acting differently. She's dressed differently. Um, so I would see significant changes in people's self image from surgeries. But then I also saw people who, and this is more rare, so I don't want you to think this is common, but people who had really great, you know, great looking faces and great noses. And they would come in and say like, I'm really not happy with this. I want it to look slightly, slightly different. different. Like, you know, one millimeter here, one millimeter there. And, and these people were really good looking and, and you're like, you know, they're clearly seeing something that's not there. And so I, I, I did confirm what um, Maxwell Maltz is the name of the surgeon that wrote that book. And it really did confirm what you said. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Plastic surgery, that's got to be such an interesting field because it's like you probably see people who like, I, I assume maybe like burn victims or like people who, who've gotten like serious kind of like facial accidents, right? Like like people who noticeably have some kind of issue, but then like you're saying, there's people who come in and they they have this kind of distorted body image and they're like seeing something that other people really aren't seeing with them, right? Is that you did you kind of have both both ends of the spectrum there? Yeah. So during my um, my residency training, we saw a lot of, um, for example, kids with cleft palates, or or yeah, people in, in accidents and and whatnot that need reconstruction, and those types of things have a definite impact on somebody's mental well-being. Like, you know, if you're a kid with a cleft palate and um, a cleft lip it does impact obviously how others perceive you and even the ability of, of the mother to form a connection with the child. Um, so those things are, are like, there's, there's not really much of a question that those things are going to improve the person's life. But then when it comes to cosmetics, that's sort of the gray area because the indication for surgery, meaning when do you, how do you decide to perform a cosmetic surgery on somebody is basically if the patient asks for it. So if they come up to you and they say, I don't like my nose, and you, their, their nose looks normal, you could still, you know, you could still operate on them because they, to them, they perceive that there's a problem. Um, now, obviously, it's up to the surgeon to decide, like, you don't need this, this isn't going to help you. Um, but that's why I kind of chose cosmetic surgery as my, specialty because I'm more interested in the gray area where and then if they are having it done how do we ensure the best outcome how do we ensure that that they do feel more confident afterwards and don't go back to their old ways of of being insecure and and caring what other people think about them mm -hmm. right do you think so I mean I'm assuming that you probably saw a lot of people who came in thinking that just by fixing their their outer you know appearance, they're gonna feel so much different about themselves. Their life was gonna change. Um, was it a common experience that that maybe that happened for a little while, but then they sort of realized that there were all of these sort of in like internal blockages. I mean, for, fortunately, most patients um, are already confident and well adjusted before going into the surgery, and so it's it's not. Um, it's not usually a big issue, but there, there are patients who, um, they, and it's, and it's called body dysmorphic disorder because what they do is they, they, they see some kind of a flaw and it may be a flaw that's not even really there, but they're convinced that this thing is the cause of their, um, negative emotions of not being good enough. Um, shame is usually what, what the emotion is that they're trying to fix. And, um, usually it's caused by some kind of a past trauma is, is what studies have found. And they end up having numerous surgeries because they think that fixing this 
you know, this lesion, whatever it is, is going to get rid of the shame. But in reality, it's um, the shame is actually at the level of the, your unconscious mind and your beliefs. And so no amount of surgery on your face or body is going to get rid of that. You have to actually um, go to the core of it and do psychological surgery, so to speak. Right. I wonder if like just kind of society, you know, just the way kind of the media portrays, you know, a certain body type, a certain, you know, image of people like that, that certainly seems like it would drive a lot of, um, you know, people to, you know, feel the need to be excessively skinny or, you know, have a perfect nose or whatever it may be. But you're saying so from kind of what you've researched, it seems like it, it like actually has more to do with like personal traumas that is kind of driving their insecurity rather than like what society is sort of saying. When it comes to body dysmorphic disorder, which is um, which is when people are having basically like wanting surgery over and over and they're obsessed with this flaw to the point where it's actually interfering with, with their lives, that is usually the result of some kind of a, a trauma in the past. Like somebody was, you know, abusive to them in some way. And it, it may be anchored to a specific body part because the person, you know, you know, called them out on, you know, on that specific body part. Um, or it may be chosen for some other reason. In terms of society in general, um, I think that does drive uh, a sense of insecurity and um, and anxiety about the way people look if, because, you know, m marketing and media are, are trying to get people to, well, to, to purchase things and to uh, work hard and make money so that they can, you know, spend, spend the money. And so it basically the media, it's in the media's interest to make you feel like happiness can be acquired through something outside of you. So buying something or looking a certain way or is going to make you happy. That that's kind of what the media sort of tries to to, sh um, to show. Social the rise of social media hasn't helped things uh, because people, you know, are sharing the best photos that they can get of themselves in an attempt to get attention, basically. And um, that can provide a skewed image of, of what other people's lives are like. You know, if you think, oh, everybody's living these amazing lives and um, posting all these, you know, pictures of them having fun and being happy when in reality, they're probably no happier than, than anybody else is, that can cause that, you know, that can cause a sense of dissatisfaction and a lot of people think that that's why there's been such a rise in um like uh an adolescent you know depression anxiety suicide rates seems to coincide with the advent of smartphones interesting yeah yeah i mean it's something i feel like just yeah as you said like just social media is something where it's like you can you can choose to broadcast whatever you want to the world and it's like it's like a job interview where you sort of just inherently want to portray your best self but it's like that's only a sliver you know what you're seeing on social media as you kind of alluded to is like only a sliver of what that person is actually like going you know experiencing in life um or you know how they look you know they they're you know especially models you know they're sharing the the top pictures that I'm sure are, you know, photoshopped and rebrushed and, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and then other people like, you know, then that sets like the standard where it's like other people feel the need to like, oh, this person's pretty, you know, this person, you know, has whatever, you know, kind of material possessions like I want or whatever, and they look a certain way. So then I feel the need to like, look like them, you know, to, to try to get it. So I, it, it's interesting though, like how I wonder, like how much of the media kind of drives the plastic surgery business. You think that's kind of like a big contributor to? Good question. 
it it definitely i mean i it, it definitely contributes uh i mean you see even the the types of surgeries that are asked for change over time based on what the media portrays as is good looking in the moment like you you can look at what was considered to be like a desirable body type for example um change over the decades and even now is different than what it was you know at the beginning of the 2000s um even the types of you know for example um one of my, uh, one of my friends w w just uh, uh was just being interviewed for for a procedure he does um eyebrow transplants and he was pointing out how nowadays people want thicker eyebrows and, and and before people wanted thinner ones and so people that over plucked their eyebrows are now coming in to get eyebrow transplants to, to make their eyebrows thicker so what you know what changes that it's it's probably the media um i think what humans find attractive there's a wide range um there's some things that are universal but in terms of like specifically what people go for yeah it's kind of what what's portrayed um and then i think people's comfort with it is growing a lot also because of the media and it you know it used to be more secretive that you know if people got plastic surgery but now it's for some people it's almost like a badge of honor and they'll document their journey through it um and they'll plan you know their next procedure similar to like if you were planning a vacation right i think i i think that's like a really good thing though that you know sort of the the shame you know shaming people that get plastic surgery that that's kind of hopefully fading i mean it's like if people want to you know alter their bodies in whatever ways they want and it's going to make them like feel better about themselves like more power to them like i i, I don't see any issue even if maybe someone is sort of like approaching it with the wrong attitude like I'm going to fix, you know, my body and then therefore I'm going to be happy. Like, but still, it's like, still, I, you know, I think it's completely their right to, to do whatever they want and modify themselves. I mean, but it also seems like it can sort of open up a can of worms. Cause it's like, if you do one, if you like alter your nose, like a centimeter to the left or whatever, and you realize, oh, wait, maybe I think it should be you know, in this other position, like, do you get, do you have like a lot of like repeat business where it's like people, people start and then just like, can't stop? Yeah, it, it's, it, it goes back to that, the client that, that I'm talking about that has this perception that, you know, more surgery is better or that surgery equals happiness. And it can be addictive because you are and, and at, first of all, I agree with you. I think it's I think it's awesome the technology we have and the ability to change the way people look, um, so that they can you know so that they they, they can choose that. Um, and as long as the person again is not doing it for to solve some other non-surgical problem, meaning great if they and especially if they you know you have to make sure you go to a surgeon that knows what they're doing and. Uh, you know, there's some people that kind of just that will go to surgeons, you know, that may not be, you know, as fully qualified. And those people end up with they may end up with complications in terms of repeat customers. Um, yeah, it's mainly. Mainly people that get sort of a high from doing it, like if if you were to have surgery on anything afterwards, you're going to get a lot of attention like, oh, you know, during your recovery. And people are gonna, you know, compliment them on their new face or nose or, or or whatnot. And if those people start, you know, think that, oh, wow, I really like this feeling, and then after a while it sort of fades away. Like you get used to the way you look. You might think, oh, I could get that feeling again by having something else done. And you know, so you, you do see that. Right. I kind of see, like, I'm starting to see a lot of parallels with like surgery and kind of like or like plastic surgery and kind of like high fashion, you know, where it, it's constantly dictated by like, you know, what the magazines are saying, you know, oh, it's the fall edition of, 
you know, this GQ and, you know, then you got to change all your clothes for the winter. And it's just like a lot of marketing and it's a lot like, okay, like I I'm getting attention cause I'm wearing this, you know, $2,000 shirt, but then I can't wear that $2,000 shirt every day or else people are going to get used to it. So then I got to like keep buying and buying and buying it. It's, I mean, I don't know, you know, I mean, I guess a lot of people are into it and it's cool, but at the same time, I guess you don't want to be a slave to, to like what other people think of you, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And good, like good plastic surgery is surgery where people don't know that you had anything done. That's, that that's the important distinction to make is unlike fashion where you're wearing, you know, an outfit and somebody can be like, Oh wow, that's an amazing outfit. Who's the designer. If you're a good plastic surgeon, you don't have the benefit of your product marketing for you because you don't, you don't necessarily want people to be like, Oh, who did your facelift or who did your nose? You want it to look so natural that they don't know that you had anything done. So that's kind of, that's kind of the, the difference there. That makes sense. Was there a yeah. specific time? Like, was there a moment or was it just kind of gradually over time where you kind of realized that people who are seeking this kind of external validation or, or trying to get their happiness, you know, from changing their physical appearance, whereas it's kind of more effective to, to work on their inner selves? When, like, was that something like a gradual process or was there like, did it click at some point? That is a good question. Um... what I think it was maybe a series of realizations. Like the first realization was, you know, not even related to plastic surgery, but I, I just would, I remember um, listening to Tony Robbins uh, personal power CDs in college. And I remember one of them, he talked about how, what does it mean to be successful? You know? And he says, there's people who, who are millionaires who consider themselves who are unhappy because they they just consider themselves to be failures because they don't have more and he said that to him that was the worst kind of failure to have worked so hard to get something and then still be unhappy um, to him is 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 failure and so I started realizing that you know when we're working towards something or wanting something we, well, we need to be in control of our happiness because how do we know that getting that thing is going to make us happy, you know? And I didn't want myself and my friends who were all very hard workers, I didn't want people to work their whole lives to, to try to get something and then end up being unhappy anyway. Then I, then I started making the connection between that and, and plastic surgery. Um, You'd see the opposite too. You'd see people that that would basically have a let's say a little bit of filler put in their face, and you know, you know, you or my eye might might not even look different to us. But then when they look in the mirror, like, oh wow, like this looks so much better. Thank you so much. And then you start realizing, you know, how much of it is sort of in in the mind and. And that's when I started making that connection. Mm -hmm. Right. It reminds me of this kind of concept of like the set point of happiness. I'm sure you, you may have heard of that. Like it's sort of a psychology concept where, you know, you could take people, I mean, they've looked at people who like, you know, are just normal average people and then they win the lottery and then it's like, okay, you know, they're riding around in Lamborghinis and jet skis and like doing all this really cool stuff and like having a ton of fun. So yeah, like makes sense that they're, you know, their happiness is going to like raise up, but that happiness, it's like, then once they get used to living a life of the jet skis and Lamborghinis, that becomes normal. So that becomes like, like it, it almost is like changes where, you know, like, like there's a bar, uh, kind of like a, an imaginary bar that sort of gets set and, you know, what could have, you know, what I feel like what could make like one person happy, say, say someone is riding around the, like, you know, an old beat up, you know, 
1990, you know, Ford sedan, whatever, you know, uh, brand new, like Honda civic, you know, they'd probably be thrilled with, but you take someone who's like riding around in whatever it is like a Ferrari. And they're going to think that car is a piece of crap. Like it's all about like your perception. And if you're used to like having nice things and, and then you don't, then it's going to be like a huge drop off. Whereas like, if you're used to not like having a ton of material possessions, then you get stuff. It's going to be like, like it's, it's just like all, like, as you're kind of saying, it's all about just your personal perception. Like, it's not like the car or like your face or, or whatever it is. It's not like it has like any inherent, like, uh, worth necessarily. It's like all about your perception of it. Exactly. And uh, so the phenomenon you're talking about, and I know exactly the studies that you're referring to, it's called, well, one of the concepts is hedonic adaptation or the hedonic treadmill, which is basically saying that humans adjust their happiness to get used to whatever improvements are made. Um, and, you know, an example is, is like the, the world that we live in today has an abundance of wealth and resources. Lives than we did back when we were, you know, farmers, but there's no, not necessarily any evidence that we're happier as humans, um, even with all these things. And with the happiness set point, that, that to me is really interesting because if I were just to tell somebody, Hey, you're going, let's say you won the lottery. How, how happy would you be? They would predict that they would be very happy and that they would be happy for a very long time. Same thing if I told you, if I asked you, how would you feel if you got in a car accident and was paralyzed? You would predict that your happiness level would drop and it would stay low for the, you know, for the rest of your life or for at least for a really long time. But these studies have shown that that's not what happens. Um, you know, it takes a varying amount of time, but more on the order of months, you actually go back to your normal level of happiness, whether it's something really good or something that's really bad. Um, so does that mean that we shouldn't strive for th making our lives better? Um, I think that what it means to me and what I've realized and what I try to teach people when I, when I coach them is that your happiness is determined by your thought, by your thinking, which is malleable. And so if you happier after they won the lottery but their thinking is malleable so they could go back to their previous happiness level very quickly because it's not actually the money that's making them happy it's the, the way that they think around the money same for having a catastrophe happen so my question or you know what i'm trying to explore is well like let's let's stop trying to worry so much about the external circumstance but how can we raise our happiness set point you know so that you're always at instead of you know trying to like go up and stay up here and then your happiness set point is still down here how can we make it so that you're permanently up here and that's mm -hmm. kind of what i'm interested in right right i just back related to to what you're talking about i mean about that kind of hedonistic set point like um i i feel like it's almost like if if someone was to win the lottery like there's there'd be you know, someone could go and just, you know, go to go to some clubs in, in Miami, buy some, you know, $5,000 tables and, you know, hey, look at me, you know, like, like just yeah. super, like, just kind of blowing money like that. But I bet you there'd be someone if, if you if the money was in the right hands, someone who like won the lottery and would like start, you know, like setting up a program to like feed the homeless or like doing something that may actually like, like it, that's why I feel like about money in general, where like, I think a lot of people who don't have money have the perception like, Oh, you know, money's the root of all evil. And like, you know, people who have money are inherently like selfish and greedy, but it's like, no, it's like maybe some of them are, but it's like actually how you spend the money. Like what, I would do if I got rich would be a lot different than what, what someone else would do. Right. right. So that I, I almost wonder if they take into account when they're looking at that sort of like, there's another sort of like 
study about like if you I think it's like if you make your happiness raises like pretty linearly up until you make I think it was like $75,000 a year and then it basically plateaus so it's kind of saying like you know you kind of you you become happier with like all of as long as all your basic needs are covered you know you're not having to worry about your next paycheck coming in you know to pay rent or whatever um you kind of got all the bases covered and then it kind of plateaus but i mean i wonder it's like if if you make a lot more money and then you're actually using that money to fuel your own happiness like how that i wonder if they took into account you know just personal variation in, in how people would spend that money good good question um and you're right what what they did find is that your happiness does raise when if you have less money than you need let's say to like to survive or to lead you know to have all the basics but as soon as you have enough it doesn't really having more money doesn't necessarily make you any happier the and so so basically what that shows is like this is kind of just you know a, a theory of of mine and you know, I'm sure other people have thought the same, but like, what are your emotions for? Well, they're, you know, they're to help us survive. They're to help, you know, an animal that sees a snake is going to feel afraid and run away. And then the fear goes away. Um, you know, anger, you know, would be a response to, you know, a situation where you need to be aggressive things like that. Sadness when something, you know, sad happens. And if they're a response to something in the environment, then they're, healthy like it's normal for those emotions to be there sorry what, what, what i mean by that is is if you are struggling to survive then your emotions are being dictated sort of by the moment to moment you know trying to get trying to make it you know and so you're not really necessarily worried about being happy you're more worried about let me, I want to, I want to survive. I want to have security. I want to have the basics, but we run into problems. Once all our basic survival needs are met, then, well, we have everything that, you know, a human needs to survive, but we don't, but there's still something missing. There's still some sort of need to have a purpose and, and we still have, so we feel stressed, you know, even though there's really nothing there that's threatening us. And we feel anxious about some vague, you know, thing like the future. And so it's like those emotions that were helping us before to survive now sort of aren't being regulated because they're being just created by our, our thoughts. And so, and that seems to happen. Like once all your basics are taken care of, that's when you really need to start managing your own happiness from the inside, because at that point it's really, you can become as stressed and anxious as you want. There's plenty of things in the world to worry about and be stressed about. So you can still be very stressed and anxious, even if you have everything you need to survive. Right. And it seems like something that our brains are kind of like evolutionarily hardwired to like, like we always kind of are going to be more basically so a couple podcasts ago, I had a I had a buddy on who kind of explained this concept of loss aversion. Basically, um, it's a kind of a poker concept of how kind of losing like losing resources is going to be more kind of harmful. Like you know, evolutionarily speaking, you know, lo you know, losing is going to be a lot more harmful than winning. So like losing resources is going to create a lot more kind of emotional suffering than gaining resources is going to create like positive emotions so but then at the same time it's like we're in charge of our own mind and it's like we can go we can sort of go in and rewire that i think that's a lot of what you know kind of your work and and sort of you know neuroscience and meditation and personal growth the, and the kind of fusion of all those things are kind of trying to figure out is like how how can we take our brains like with the current state of like we don't have to most of us aren't having to like figure out how to survive like on a day to day, you know, we're not fighting for our survival, but we're still, as you mentioned, we're still kind of plagued by all of those same, you know, worrying about what's going to happen, worrying about the past, worrying about the future, all of these things that aren't necessarily like adaptive anymore. 
you know? So they're still sort of like wired into us, I think, on a core level. Yeah. I, yeah. I know that the loss aversion is, is an interesting thing. It's, it, it seems to be, um, it does feel like it's built in. Uh, like you would, you would rather not win or sorry, what, what is it? You would, you, you would rather lose five, uh, I'm gonna pull up the exact five thousand dollars and like lose five thousand dollars. I I forget how to word it, but the idea of of having something and losing it is much worse to us than just not getting it to begin with. Um, but I also wonder how much of it is hardwired and how much of it is learned. Um, I think there's got to be um, some element of it being hardwired because of the way we respond to the environment and our need to survive. But then kind of kind of like we were talking about before, there comes a point where you sort of switch over to your survival is already assured, but you're still act you still you still you still focus on negative things more than you focus on the positive things. And and I think a lot of that is actually society definitely puts a puts an emphasis on focusing on the negative like that be careful bad things are going to happen to you if you don't plan um you know and a lot of it might be from parents instilling this in us when we were kids kind of and it might be something that we learn in school too um and certainly the media takes things that are you know minor things and makes them sound really negative to get more attention to get more eye eyeballs on the on the news so we, we're sort of we sort of live in a society that sort of teaches us that it's okay to focus on negative things and to complain about things that aren't really that bad oh absolutely and i it's like I mean, I'm sure you have this experience where it's like you go out to just like any restaurant or you go out anywhere where people are walking and you just overhear people's conversations. It's almost always they're complaining about what some politician did. They're complaining about what their boss did. They're complaining about what their parents said. Like it's I just find that almost all people are like in this sort of like victim mentality where they're like they think that their life is like that their life kind of sucks. I mean, whether it sucks or not, but they think that, you know, their life is like heavily affected by what someone else is doing, where it's like, I think me and you have come to the realization that it's like, you know, more so about like what, you know, how, like how we're actually perceiving like that sort of situation, like, because other people are going to do whatever the hell they're going to do. We don't have a lot of control over that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, I think a lot of it is learned. And then obviously what you do frequently strengthens the neural connections in your brain. So, you know, it becomes hardwired, but I think it is flexible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I'm curious, like, you know, because it seems like this is something, I mean, we've had past conversations and it sounds like this is, you've, you've for a long time kind of been into this whole you know, personal growth, kind of developing yourself sort of sphere. Um, when did it sort of become um, an idea for you to actually take this and, and kind of turn it into a business? Like when did you, when did you think I want to be a, a personal coach and share my wisdom with other people? Um, mainly I knew that I wanted to incorporate an element of coaching in anything that I did, you know, like even as, as a plastic surgeon, I wanted to have that to be a part of the experience. Um, but then when I met, um, my own, the person who's my coach now, he was somebody that had, you know, built his own coaching practice. And, um, he sort of started telling me about the, the practicalities of it, like how you actually do it. And that actually really helped demystify the whole thing and made me realize, hey, I can do this. The other, the other part of it was I started realizing that I actually, when I talked to people, they, they would be like, whoa, this is really interesting what you have to say. And I found that 
I had ideas that I think a lot of people hadn't really heard and that they really would benefit from hearing. And the more I kind of told people about, you know, my concepts, the more I realized that, that, Hey, I have something here that, that can actually help a lot of people. And so, um, basically it's, it's like, I'm very confident in my ability to help people. And so that makes it easier to set off on doing it professionally. And you're like, I'm, I'm really good at this. Um, and then of course, and then the other part of it is having the, the know-how of, well, how do I like get this product out there? And, and that's the nice thing about having friends who are coaches and knowing people who are coaches because they can guide me on that. Right. I mean, that seems like such an important thing. Just like, did you have someone like that? Like when you were kind of, whether it was like a mentor going through, um, you know, going through plastic surgery training or like, what, like, did you feel like there was someone that kind of like instilled into you these sort of lessons or did you more so like personally cultivate it through your reading and, and research? Like, how did that kind of come about? Um, you mean the, the coaching? Well, just, just like your whole, I mean, like, because you've gotten this feedback, right. From people like they, like mm. you, t you tell people your theories, you tell them, you know, about certain concepts you have. And it's like, you're getting all this positive feedback and therefore kind of becoming more and more confident in your abilities. Um, but I'm guessing, you know, like what, like what, what do you think was kind of the driver? Like for you, was it having a coach or was it, more so a solo kind of route. I, I don't think I had, I, I got my coach, my coach recently, but it's been sort of a lifelong trajectory. And I think it's been, there are certain people who I've known like friends of mine who were also really interested in self-improvement and personal development. And so they'd share books that they read with me and I'd share stuff that I read with them. And we talk about concepts and then, but then at some point what happens is, um, and I think this, this probably will happen to most people who start, you know, looking into it is, is like when you start learning about the self or, you know, the mind, it really is the most interesting subject in the world because that's who you are. Like you're learning about what you are and you know, what reality is. And once I, like once I started going down that rabbit hole, it was just kind of a self perpetuating process where I just couldn't stop. I was like, I just need to learn more and I, I want to figure out what's going on. I want to, I just want to figure it out. And so to this day, it's external motivation or, or uh, mentor or anything it's more like my, my own personal desire to know what's going on and to connect the dots and yeah like once once you pass a certain threshold where you start seeing kind of how little we actually know of how our experience is created you're like wait there's a lot of mystery here and i just i it's like i just want to know more and so that's kind of end up being me pursuing all these different threads on my own. Mm -hmm. Right. Just having that personal kind of passion for, for figuring all this stuff out. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I mean, it seems like you probably find a lot of kind of uh, like-minded sort of journeyers um, who are also just as curious as you are. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, just that, a lot of this stuff is stuff you kind of have to do kind of on your own time. Like it's not built into schools. It's not like we don't have dialogues about this. Like, you know, most people don't talk about this sort of stuff with, with their friends unless they have, you know, friends who are coaches, you know. Um, I think it's oftentimes sort of like you're, I don't know. It's like what you're doing, like externally, it's like, people will talk about that a ton, but then when it comes to like the internal, like what is reality or what, it, you know, what, what's going on in my mind, like that's kind of a subject that seems like a lot 
more like off limits for so, like certain people. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 that kind of thing is sort of, I think for a lot of people, it's like you're either, you maybe you have a religion that sort of answers those questions and doesn't really make room for asking more questions. In other words, a religion might say, these are the answers, don't you know, question them. Um, but then there's people who also um, aren't religious, but they kind of adopt the same attitude of like, well, if science hasn't figured it out yet, then, you know, then that's it, you know, then, or, you know, whatever science says is what reality is. And, and these people, it's, it's like, it's almost like being religious because, because they actually don't see how little science has explained. And so they, they think that, oh yeah, science, science has got it. Like science has figured it out. But science has figured out very little of, or has been able to explain very little of how reality works. So it's like this false sense of like, yeah, we know what's going on, but it's like, no, we don't. And I'm not saying that you should just start making theories or, or pretend that there's like, you know, uh, you know, you know, high supernatural forces. You don't have to, you know, pretend that they're there, but you can't also just assume that we've got it figured out because we definitely do not. Right. Yeah. I think that that's definitely clear to say. Um, I'm curious as far as, you know, you went to, to London, right, a couple weeks ago um, and kind of met, if, if I believe or if I understood it correctly, you were kind of meeting up with sort of other coaches, kind of a crew that was getting mentored by a certain coach. Is that is that accurate? It was 13, um, 13 men and some of them were coaches, some of them not. And it was you could call it a, an immersion or a retreat that was put on by my coach. And, um, yeah, no, I, sorry to interrupt you. I, I just was going to say, like, I know you do a lot of these and, uh, you know, I'm just curious as far as like, you know, what your, you know, kind of the biggest takeaway is what, you know, what you sort of get out of these events. Events like that one and, and even the one where, where you and I, uh, met, they serve several purposes. I mean, one is it's great to have a period of time where you just turn off your phone and just sort of stop doing the, the daily things that you do and just slow down your mind. Like th that alone is very helpful and, and provides a lot of benefit. Um, what was, what was great about that and the other and other events like it is, you the the cool thing about it is you also see other people going through let's say their own transformation and solving their own problems and it's and you hear somebody with a, with an issue that may not that at first doesn't sound related to yours but then you realize oh their problem is very similar to mine even though they look different on the outside the core cause or the core way of thinking that's causing it is the same, let's say, as I can apply it to my own life, you know? So it's great to see other people fixing, you know, unrelated issues because it actually helps you with your own issues. And for me as a coach, then I can see what worked for this person so that then the next time I run into somebody and they say, oh, I've got this problem, I'll, I'll say, oh, you know, and I'll, I'll have a, a new way of looking at it that can help them because I've seen it work in somebody else. Um, also, also you, you can go deeper when it's like several, several days of, of focused work on yourself. Like you, you sometimes fix a, a, an issue and then the underlying it is something else. And then underlying that is something else. And I mean, there, there's, there's no end to, to how, how much you can streamline or improve yourself. Right. You know, I just made the connection where it's almost like, it's almost sort of a solution in a way to the problem that social media creates where, where social media is like what we were talking about earlier is portraying people's best selves, not showing any of their problems, but like by going to one of these, 
you know, groups, one of these workshops where you're actually like sharing and like learning, oh, like this person. So for me, I've, you know, done a, a, a couple of these sort of things and just have the biggest like aha moments of like, you know, at first, like looking at these people and I see them like so externally successful and I'm just like, I sort of automatically assume all of these things about them and that they must be incredibly like charismatic, confident people. Um, but then they start revealing like a lot of their insecurities and flaws and it's like sort of humanizing because you realize like they're, they're kind of just like you, you know, they're not perfect and they're not, they're not pretend. They're not like they, they're letting down the mask that is like pretending to portray a certain idealized image. Absolutely. Yeah. I always feel just like having, having these conversations. I mean, that's almost like part of the goal of the podcast is just like to break that, you know, like having these like organic conversations. Cause I, I don't know about you, but I always feel like so much refresh, you know, more refreshed after one of these. Cause it's like, we go about our daily lives and there's so much just, uh, you know, we have to act a certain way, you know, because we want other people to perceive us, you know, in a certain way, whether that's our bosses, our friends, our family, you know, there's a lot of times where it's not really okay to just be you. Yeah. I was thinking about this earlier, how like, you know, every 24 hour period, we, we sleep for some period of time, you know, six hours, eight hours, however much sleep you get. But if you don't, if you go without that sleep, then like you get progressively more detached from reality and you start hallucinating and you die eventually if you don't sleep. But when you do sleep, like it doesn't matter like what was going on the day before, like you wake up and you're just like totally refreshed and ready to take on the day. And like you're very creative in the morning and you know, the problems from yesterday are only carried forward into today. If you, consciously kind of bring them back but like even a nap can make you go from being in a really bad mood to being you know back to normal you know and I feel like these kind of retreats I'm realizing they sort of serve the same function on like a larger scale where it's like okay I spend most of the year you know with my phone on me responding to things you know hustling as it were but then this is like a block of time where like my brain is purposely going to slow down. And then when you go back to real, real life, your brain is still operating on that slower, um, in that slower mode. But of course it starts speeding up again and you go back the way you were. And so then you, so then you go back to another one, you know? And so my coach does these every six months and there's people that have gone to like eight or 10 and it's not like that. They're not, they're not working and they keep coming back because the, the coaching isn't working. They're coming back because it, it provides a tangible benefit that occurs and, you know, and it's like to refresh yourself every so often. Mm, yeah. I mean, it seems like something that's neat. It's, it's almost like a, like a mental vacation, right? Do you, yeah, do you come back from these, like, I mean, I assume kind of like with, with a lot of different perspectives and is yeah. that something you think is, is like a big part of just your trajectory in terms of growing, whatever it is your, I mean, if it was before kind of doing your plastic surgeon, uh, plastic surgery business, um, or just getting ideas, is that kind of a big part of it? A big part of you feel like just being able to be creative, stepping out from your day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, yeah. And I think other, you know, very successful people and creatives and uh, et cetera do the same thing. Um, there's a really good book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. And he starts the book by saying how Carl Jung, the psychologist, had a retreat, uh, like this basically this like stone house that, that was built by hand with no electricity and and I forgot where it was, somewhere somewhere in Europe, like, you know, in a forest on, by a lake. And he would go there for half the year. So half the year he'd be 
a practicing clinician, a psychologist. And the other half of the year, he'd go to this retreat and just write. And, and Cal Newport says that we all need to, to have this kind of like time where we can just be alone with our thoughts and our work to allow our brains to process it and create. And whether you do that like you know, half and half or like every week you have a block of time, I think that if we, if we just stay in the rat race or, or you know, doing your job, like working for somebody else and not taking time to yourself, I mean, you can do that, but, but true growth, I think, happens in the times when you're away from, from that. Kind of like when you're working out, the muscles actually grow when you're resting, and I think, yeah. I think it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, yeah. Um, there, it reminds me, I, when I was just talking to our mutual friend, Randy, um, mm -hmm. the other week, you know, one of the, the, the things I, I, uh, took from the interview, like I posted this on Instagram, this quote where he basically said, people go to the office to hide from opportunity. It gets them away from everybody. I don't have an office. I never thought that I could have an office. And I just, that stuck in my head. Cause it's like, it really is true where it's like, so many people just just kind of go, you know, often to an office, just their mundane kind of day-to-day -day life, and it's sort of they want to be doing something different. Like they see people like going out and you know going on trips and to the beach and whatever it is, but instead of like pursuing their passion, um, they seem to just get you know kind of get locked into you know follow you know i think because it's easier i don't know it's like what they're what they're used to in part kind of like what you know and there's like security in that where kind of doing something like you do like looking at yourself and and you know trying to figure out these like very complicated issues is something i think it's a lot easier like not to look at those i think that's why a lot of people don't you know, they just go through their life kind of without really like thinking about like, what, what am I, you know, why am I here? What, like, what am I doing? What am I doing? What I want to be doing? Am I doing what I'm doing because someone else or society has told me that I should be doing this? You know, there's like all of these questions that I think, like, I don't know if they don't cross other people's minds or they just don't choose to like engage them. It's I don't like, know. It, like, it's like cleaning out a closet that like you've neglected for a really long time and like it just has all this stuff in there like you don't even know what's in there at this point and you know that in order to clean it out you have to you know open the door and like all this stuff is going to come falling out and like stuff that you haven't seen in forever and you know you gotta bring it all out into the light before you can throw away the stuff that you don't want and you have to decide what you want to do with it and you're gonna like have to confront things like, oh, why did I buy that thing that I never used? Like, it's not a fun. It doesn't sound fun. It it's kind of scary, and so you'd much rather just like leave that closet door closed and not open it. And society will would would love for you to do that as well because you could just you know keep doing your you know your nine to five job, you know be you know make some you know make somebody else money and and never really. Um, question who you are or try to evolve um i mean society is perfectly happy for us to, to keep doing that and for many that's fine because all they want is security and but i think that for people that um that want to break free of of the past and create their be in control of their reality um they they're gonna have to confront what's in that closet and well said it, any time you clean, anytime you organize, so like if I'm going to move stuff around my place and like clean up my room, it's going to look messier temporarily before it gets cleaner. And I think there's that inertia of like, I don't want, I don't want to see what's in there. I don't want to deal with, deal with that. And then there's also probably most people think that there's no point they're, they're They don't think that there's something more. They're like, this is as good as it gets. Why would I, why would I try to make it any better? And so if they don't right. think there's anything better, then they're not going to try. Right. Right. 
yeah, they think this is all there. And it, it's almost also like something I connect back to like where, you know, like traveling and like, if, if you're used to, you know, living in, you know, some rural town in, in New Mexico or something where there's, you know, like one main street and, you know, there's, you're, you're in such like a confined little reality and, and maybe you don't have the financial resources or, or whatever to get out of that. And then you kind of just like, that becomes like your worldview where it's like, you, you think that's all there is. And you think it's normal for people to like, you know, just hang out and, and do whatever it is. But it's, it's really, I, I think that's, what's cool about travel is it's like, you get to see all of these alternatives of like ways to live. You see people living their lives in all sorts of different ways. And you realize like, Oh, I could be like this person. I could live like this. I could do, you know, I could like kind of pave my own way based off kind of, you know, picking and choosing what you see in different, whether it's different cultures or religions or, you know, just, just, you know, uh, whatever it is, just, kind of made like paving your own way yeah i think that's yeah definitely important well i want to so this will uh wrap up part one uh of the episode um we're going to do a part two